Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 15th, 2014. We've been having serious technical difficulties tonight between, well, well Sword Brethren's telephone system, I guess. He claims he can't hear me on two different lines. I don't know what's up with that. And also on TalkShoe, where people say that I'm muffled or I'm echoey. I don't understand that. The people in the Christogenia forum who are listening on Christogenia Streaming Radio have said there is no problem. So I don't know if it's Skype or, or if it's... Um, I tried calling in the talk show three or four different times. I don't know if it's Skype. I, I don't know if it's talk show. And, and I, I really don't care at this point. I'm pretty tired of talk show. I, I think that... Um, Wow, TalkShoe has problems, or, or they're giving me problems. I don't know. It, it's sometimes programs go smoothly with no trouble whatsoever. I think TalkShoe has technical issues, possibly. Tonight we're going to present, well, well, tonight I'm going to present um, Pragmatic Genesis Explaining 2C Line Part 14, I just want to have a discussion of some of Esau's and Ishmael's descendants, who they are today, and what certain prophecies say about these people. So far in this series, that, that this program was designed just to sort of get back into presenting this material after a five or six week hiatus. So far in this series, well, in the last two segments, we discussed why Isaac was sacrificed and how ever since the sacrifice of Isaac, all the, the Bible story and world history have revolved around Jacob and Esau from that time forward. When Isaac and, I'm sorry, when Jacob and Esau reached manhood, Esau married Hittite wives, and, well, that was a, a grief of mine at first to his mother, and, and then later, after his, well, well, the way that Genesis presents it, after his mother's beckoning and cajoling, it, it, it well, it also troubled his father. The, um, well, Esau sought his own will, and Esau married who he pleased, where Jacob was willing to seek of his past and to be obedient to them and marry one of his own kinsmen. But that's an important lesson in, in the Bible, and it's a clear racial message that I, I, I don't know how the Judeo-Christians answer that or, or if they just dismiss it, but but... You can't get much clearer than Rebecca's trouble over the daughters of Heth and, and her exclaiming that her own life would do her no good at all if Jacob took wives of, of, of the Canaanite women. We can tell from Hebrews chapter 12 that Esau lost his birthright because he was a fornicator and a race mixer. 
while, while fornication being race mixing. He was a profane man, as Paul called him. The idea in, in the Hebrew law of profanity is the idea of sharing something in common that's supposed to be set apart for the purposes of God. Something profane is something that's not unclean by the law, but something that's handled or, or treated in an unclean manner, and, and that makes it profane. That's what Esau did. He shared himself in an unclean manner, and for that reason, Paul called him profane, because he married Canaanite women. There's no other sin of Esau's that can be pointed to that he, that, that's recorded that he could have possibly committed except his marriage of Canaanite and Hittite women. Tonight, we're going to go through the descendants of Esau, and, and the significance of some of these stories, I'm, I'm going to um, call a few things into question, and I'm going to hopefully dismiss a few of the, well, well the heresies, and I see them as, as outright heresies, that have been more or less of a past amongst identity Christians. And there are still people today that, that actually um, subscribe to these to certain ridiculous ideas. I'm also going to talk a little bit about the book of Job because that there are um, well, well and, and I accepted myself um, for a long, long time some of the things that Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, some of the things they taught about the book of Job. I've read the book a couple of times, I've read it in, in Hebrew, and I've had, I, I've, well, well, no, I'm sorry, I haven't read it in Hebrew, but I've read the Masoretic Text translation, and I've read the Septuagint translations, and, and um, there are certain questions about the book of Job which must be raised, and I'm not disputing the book itself. I do believe that it's a legitimate book. It's just that the way it's taught in Christian identity the way it's commonly taught is probably not correct. We're going to examine some of those issues tonight without necessarily making our minds up one way or another. Genesis 36.1 Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hittite, and Bashemath, Ishmael's daughter, son of Nebaioth. She was the, the only wife of Esau who is potentially white. She probably was white. We don't we don't know who Ishmael married. We're not told that in Scripture. However, there were at this time, perhaps not eight or nine hundred years later, but at this time, at the time of Isaac and Jacob and Esau, there were great white nations living in the Arabian Peninsula, the descendants of Joktan, the descendants of the Shemitic Sheba, 
which we see listed in Genesis chapter 10. At this time, the Arabian Peninsula, and, and I discussed this way back when we began this series and we were talking about the four rivers, that there was a river which crossed the Arabian Peninsula from the mountains near the Red Sea all the way to what we would call Kuwait today, where the mouth of the river was. This river's been identified by archaeologists and, and geologists. It, it without doubt existed. It existed up until a point that, that's probably not very long before the Christian era. And, and the Arabian Plains were, were probably a much more fertile place than they are today because, not only because of the river itself, but because of the climate system that would have caused the river to form. That now, you know, the Romans called Arabia Felix Arabia, which we would basically translate Blessed Arabia. And when they came up with that name, I somehow don't think that Arabia was the hellhole that it is today, the barren wasteland that it is today. It must have been a much more fertile place at one time. So, so when Ishmael was sent away and, and Hagar were sent away and, and had to depart from Abraham and Isaac, it seems that there certainly would have been um, potential white women that Ishmael may have chosen for wives. Let's talk about the descendants of Ishmael in brief before we get into the descendants of Esau. First, the word Nabataean, which described a portion of the Arabs from the earliest historical times, seems to have come from this Nebaioth, this son of, of the woman that Esau married. These Nebatahian Arabs can claim a connection to Ishmael, but they also have a connection to Esau, and we will get to that a bit later. The descendants of Ishmael from Genesis chapter 25. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaioth, and Kedar, and Adbiel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Massa, Hadar, and Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and by their castles, twelve princes according to their nations. Now, it may be that all of these men were white at one time, but <laughs> that doesn't hold up through history. They are definitely among the, the, the Arab races, the, the mixed race the mixed-race nations, which um, we'll see that that's even recognized in, in Flavius Josephus 2,000 years ago, before they really imported great numbers of Negro slaves. Let me also say that Clifton Emmerheiser has um, been doing some research in this area, and apparently, 
and this doesn't surprise me, except that the date is a little older than, than I would have imagined. I, I would have figured possibly back to the Hellenistic period or maybe a little bit before that to the Persian period. But evidently, there was a, a Negro slave trade and Negroes were being brought to Southeast Asia, and, and as far as what today is China, the Philippines, Malaysia, Negroes were being brought there from Africa and sold in exchange for goods to, to these Orientals as slaves. And it's evident that this, that this information comes first from a... 19th century French anthropologist, that there is evidence that there were black Africans in Southeast Asia back to perhaps 700 B.C. That, now, um, that, that, that might sound amazing, but we have to um, imagine that these Australian aboriginals, and, and the, the, there's a clear strain of Negro blood that's very ancient in the Philippines, in Malaysia. We have to imagine that it got there somehow. And evidently, it got there through, we'll call them Arabian slave traders. Whether they were Arabs when they started at that early time or not is really immaterial. Of these 12 descendants of Ishmael, only three of them are really of any note throughout the rest of the Bible, and they are Kedar, Duma, and Temah. The troops of Temah are mentioned in Job 6.19. Temah is listed among the enemies of Judah in Jeremiah 25.23. Isaiah prophecies against Duma and Temah, in chapter 21 of his prophecy, the burden against Duma, in both of these places, both in in Isaiah chapter 21 and Jeremiah 25:23, Dedan, a city of the children of Jokshan, what we could see that name in Genesis chapter 10, the descendants of Jokshan. I'm sorry towards the end of Genesis chapter 11. Dedan, the children of Dedan are also mentioned in the same category as the children of Edom and Ishmael as, um, as enemies of Judah and Israel. The burden of Duma in Isaiah chapter 21 begins with a reference to Seir. Kedar is also mentioned and Isaiah seems to be telling us that all of these places would receive the same earthly judgment. Kedar is prophesied against one more time in Jeremiah 49:28. So we see that all of the descendants of Ishmael and Jokshan and Esau, that they're all listed as enemies to the children of Israel in the books of the prophets. However, we must bear in mind that Ishmael was originally an Adamic man, and so was Dedan. And there is a positive prophecy concerning these people, along with Midian 
and Sheba, who, who were sons of Shem. And, and well, Sheba was a, a grandson, great-grandson of Shem. He, he was a descendant of Shem through Jokshan. And Midian was a descendant of Abraham by Keturah. So, so these people in Isaiah chapter 60, they are a subject the positive subjects of a prophecy, a prophecy which shows that there's hope for these people. However, the Edomites are not mentioned in that light in Isaiah chapter 60. There's no hope for the Edomites or, or any of the other Canaanite tribes. Now, we should understand from the words of Christ in the Gospel that the entire Adamic race will be in a resurrection. And, of course, that would include Ishmael, Dadan, Midian, Sheba. They're white descendants, but that surely doesn't include any of these Arab bastards, because Arabs, bastards, won't be in the congregation of Yahweh. So we can't use Scripture by any means to legitimize Arab bastards. Whether you're a, a half-bastard Israelite or a half-bastard Adamic person from another tribe, you're still a bastard, and you're still rejected and, and will never see the kingdom of heaven because you're not born from above. You're a broken cistern that can't hold the Adamic spirit. You're a bastard who will never enter the congregation of Yahweh, as Paul says in Hebrews, in chapter, the end of chapter, no, I'm sorry, chapter 12, I believe it's verse 8. If you're not chastised by Yahweh, you're either a son or a bastard. And, and Paul's not offering the bastards any salvation whatsoever. It's just not there for them. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. There's a, um, and I put the book away, so I, I have to get up and get it like a dummy we're almost done with Ishmael for a little bit anyway he's going to come up a few times tonight ancient Near Eastern texts related to the Old Testament this is an inscription it's an Assyrian inscription it dates to the time of Ashurbanipal this is the middle of the 7th century B.C. I'm going to read this inscription. It's from page 300 of that book. I, I quote that book often in Christogenia in my essays and especially in the Amos podcasts that, that I presented last year. All the notes are online. This is from a description, an inscription of Ashurbanipal. It's, it's a long inscription talking about all the places that he, he had conquered and, and um, the Nabatahi and Arabs are mentioned in it. This is possibly 670, 660, 650 B.C. So, so we see that these are actual historical groups known in inscriptions from outside of the Bible. Ishmael is not mentioned very often in Assyrian inscriptions. The inscriptions in this particular book, and there's many of them, there's about 40 pages of them, that there's only one mention of Ishmael. I caught alive 
Uate, king of Ishmael, who was in agreement with him, meaning the enemies of Ashurbanipal, meaning Shamashemukin, Amulade, the king of Kedar, had fallen into the hands of my army in a battle engagement, and they brought him to me alive. So there we see inscriptional evidence for both a king of Ishmael and a king of Kedar, who is listed as one of the sons of Ishmael. The, the prophecies concerning judgment against all of these Arab tribes are, of course, foreboding. They, they're all going to be destroyed in the last days. The actual Adamic souls, of course, are going to see the resurrection. Verse 4, now the descendants of Esau. And Adah bare to Esau Eliphaz, and Bashamath bare Ruel, and Aholibamah bare Jeush and Jalam and Korah. We're going to see a lot of names in this list that are also used by Israelites later on. These are the sons of Esau, which were born unto him in the land of Canaan. And Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his house and his cattle and all his beasts and all his substance which he had gotten in the land of Canaan and went into the country from the face of his brother Jacob. For their riches were more than that they might dwell together and the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir Seir is Edom. Later in this chapter, we encounter the dukes of Edom who are called dukes of the Horites in verses 21 and 29. But the Horites are a family of the Canaanites that dwelt in Mount Seir before Esau even settled there. Here we should read from Genesis 14. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Kerdorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the valley of Sidon, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kirtolamor, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kirtolamor and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephames in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham and the Enims in Shavah Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Mount Seir is used as an epithet for Edom in Isaiah chapter 21 and Ezekiel's chapters 25 and 35. 
Strong's Concordance describes the Horites as cave dwellers or troglodytes, as the Greeks would call them. I am convinced, although I may never be able to prove it, that the Canaanite Hivites of Scripture are in the Horites, who are in turn known to archaeologists as Hurrians. I'm convinced of that because the Hivites, well, well they're not known to archaeologists, and the Horites are, are very prolific throughout, even as far as northern Mesopotamia and the Mitanni Kingdom. The Horites are well known as Hurrians by archaeology and in inscriptions. And the words Hivite and Horite in Hebrew, those words differ only between the Resh and the Vav, the R and the V, which are two look-alike letters which are easily and often confused by the scribes. As an aside, the word Seer, the word Seer, Mount Seer, is from the same Hebrew word which gave us the Greek word Seter. And that's also a Hebrew word, Seter. It also gives us the Roman name Saturn. Saturn was the Roman storm god. The Hebrew word which gives us seer describes something rough. Closely related Hebrew words were used to describe hair as being rough or to describe storms which were rough, rough weather. Esau was rough and hairy, and that word, seer or satyr, was used to describe him. Saturn, the storm god of the Romans. Satyr, Saturn, that, that's not a far cry. The words are definitely cognate. Satyrs were figures of Greek mythology which were half man and half goat, and they were rough and hairy. That's where satyrs got their name from, the Hebrew. Hebrew words cognate to that word seer, or that description of Esau. There were sources. Pliny the Elder, I believe Clifton M. Hires has quoted this in some of his papers. There are sources which tell us originally that satyrs were depicted as half man and half ape. And we will discuss them when we get to discuss two-seed-line theology in the prophets. The Arabs of Seir may have been the first satyrs, which the Greek, or, or perhaps the Edomites at Seir may have been the first satyrs, which the Greeks regularly portrayed as sexually insatiable party animals. That this is even the name of a disease called satyriosis or something like that. It's in the dictionary, but which describes somebody who's insatiable sexually. Verse 9. And there were the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in Mount Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Bashemath, the wife of Esau. 
There are some who have commented that Ruel represents a white Adamic branch of the Edomites because his mother was a what was a daughter of Ishmael. What while Ruel himself may have indeed been white, did his children stay white? This is highly doubtful. There were plenty of white Adamic tribes extant in what we now know as Arabia, while not all parts of what we know as modern Arabia were anciently considered Arabian. They weren't back then. The land was divided between many tribes, some of them Adamic originally, and some of them not. The Shemitic tribes of Peleg, Jakan, Sheba, Havilah, all inhabited once flourishing parts of the peninsula. However, it is clear in Scripture that Ruel and his children continued to dwell at Mount Seir along with the Horites and the descendants of Esau's Canaanite sons. Without a guiding light, so to speak, to keep them separate, it is highly unlikely they could have possibly remained distinct. Without a biblical or historical basis for imagining that they remained distinct, it should not be conjectured. Edomites are never distinguished in the prophets and later scriptures. They are all hated by God. Yahweh never said, I hated Esau, except the sons of Ruel, they're okay because they're white. No, he never said that. He said, I hated Esau, and all of his children are described as being vessels of destruction. Verse 11. And the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zephel, and Getam, and Kenaz. Now, now, first I would like to unplug a couple of things which are often misunderstood concerning this Kenaz. Stories that should by no means be repeated amongst identity Christians. In Genesis 15:19, we see a group among the ten tribes of Canaan called the Kenizzites. I have heard many claim that the Kenizzites of Genesis 15, that they were descendants of this Kenaz of Esau's sons, who's not mentioned in Scripture until Genesis chapter 36. That would be a good trick. This would be impossible, since the Kenizzites of Genesis 15, they were around for many years before Esau was even born to have a son of his own by this name. We have no license to play fast and loose with the historical aspects of Scripture, simply because the two words are related. While the word Kenizzite may refer or describe a descendant of Kenaz. That does not mean that these earlier Kenizzites are descendants of this Kenaz. That's ridiculous. This name Kenaz, like nearly all Hebrew names, comes from a common word. Kenaz means hunter. Are all hunters alive today related? Of course not. And that brings us to the second part of what must be addressed here. There was a noble man 
of the Israelites, named Caleb, who was rewarded for his deeds in the conquest of Canaan. This is during the conquest of the land of Canaan, at least 200 years after Jacob went to Egypt. There are many so-called identity Christians, they're really identity clowns, who claim that Caleb was an Edomite simply because in Scripture he was called a son of Canaz. In Joshua 15, 15, Judges 1, 13, Judges 3, verses 9 to 11, we see that Caleb was the son of a man named Canaz. Yet this Caleb is also, is also called the son of Jephunneh, in Numbers 13, 14, many other places. In Numbers 32, 12, he is called Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. The Kenizzite meaning the descendant of Kenaz. That don't mean he's the descendant of Esau's son, Kenaz. So where he's called a son of Kenaz, he's really a grandson. That, that's a popular um, Hebrew tradition reflected often in Scripture. In 1 Chronicles chapter 4, we see in the genealogy of Caleb that he was separated by several generations from his, from his ancestor who would have been closest in time to the life of Esau's grandson, Kenaz. That ancestor would be Jacob's grandson, Perez. Perez was already born and grown and had children of his own when he accompanied his family to Egypt. Then as many as eight generations of Israelites sojourned in Egypt. And then they spent 40 years in the desert. The Israelites spent 40 years in the desert so that none of those born in Egypt would live to enter into Canaan with Joshua. Therefore, Caleb's grandfather, Canaz, could not have been the Edomite, Canaz, and Caleb must have been one of those born during the years of Israel's wandering after the Exodus. We are told expressly what tribe Caleb is from in Numbers 13.6, where Joshua's chosen spies are listed, and it says, of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. I've heard this repeated a hundred times. Oh, Caleb was an Edomite. His father was Canaz. And the idiots go to the Edomite, Canaz. I, I don't believe it, but it happens all the time. I've probably heard this three times a year the last five, six years. If Caleb was of Judah, then his paternal grandfather, Canaz, was of Judah. I've heard it said by the same fools that Caleb, the son of Kamez, was an Edomite because the scripture says he had a different spirit in him. Well, yeah, the scripture does say that of Caleb, that he had a different spirit in him. However, upon reading the entire passage of Numbers 14, verses 23 through 24, we see that Caleb's spirit was different because it was good and it was obedient obedient to God, as opposed to most of Israel, which remained disobedient even after the exodus and 40 years in the desert. Caleb is being complimented 
because his spirit was an obedient spirit. It was different from all of those hard-headed, stiff-necked Israelites. This heresy concerning Caleb must be put to rest. All those who repeat it should be exposed to the fools that they really are. They repeat something they hear that's cool and, and, and well, it sounds intriguing and, and they're going to reveal some great conspiracy and, and they make themselves idiots because the Bible, well, well, the Bible refutes them soundly. Let's repeat verse 11. And the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatan, and Kenaz. One of the two friends of Job, the book of Job, was Aliphaz the Temanite. Now, now that by itself doesn't prove anything because Timon, we will see, Timon is a Hebrew word which means southward. Therefore, it is possible that the place already existed and Esau simply named one of his sons after it. Oracles against Timon are found the city are found in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, and Habakkuk. They are not all fulfilled. As the prophecies concerning Esau and Obadiah and in Malachi are certainly not fulfilled. Yet another friend of Job was Namathite, and Namah was also town in southern Judah at one time, of course. It may have been in the claim of the Edomites since it bordered on Edom, possibly before Israel and the conquest of Canaan, before Israel came into the land of Canaan. So, Eliphaz the Temanite is ostensibly from, Tem from Teman and certainly very possibly an Edomite, depending on when you want to believe Job lived. But the other friend of Job was a Namathite, and Namah was a town in southern Judah. So this, that this is dating Job to a period much later than the conventional dating but which Compare and Swift and other earlier Christian identity teachers ha have purported Job to be, Perhaps Job is not as early as they claimed. It may be possible that Job was from southern Judah and had an Edomite companion, but that he dwelt somewhere in the southern part of what became known as the land of Judah. It says that Job was from the land of Uz, there were men named Uz before times. There were men. There was a man named Uz who was a Shemite, a, a, a descendant of Shem, mentioned in Genesis 10:23. However, Seir the Horite also had a descendant named Uz, Genesis 36:28. And the land of Uz in Edom is mentioned in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25.20 and Lamentations 4.21. Now, 
Seer the Horite, we're not told when his sons were born, whether they were already there or not when Esau got there. They may have that they may well have been. In fact, would seem to be the case. But the land of Uz belongs to the Horites. And Job lives in the land of Uz. While he has friends of Eliphaz the Temanite and another friend who was a Namathite, a town in southern Judah. There's an appendix to Job in, in the Septuagint which admits having been taken from the Syriac book, meaning that it was not originally in any Greek or Hebrew manuscript, but which claims that Job himself was an Edomite without affirmative corroboration Considering that Yahweh hated Esau, we should not accept that as canon, because Yahweh clearly didn't hate Job. The land of Uz is mentioned in Jeremiah 25.20 and in Lamentations 4.21 as well, not in a positive light. So, so that's the... Um, the circumstances surrounding the book of Job, I believe it needs a lot more study before um, before it can be decided one way or another. And if it can be concluded exactly who Job was. The, um, well, in ancient times, those men from those tribes bought and sold and traded land all over the place. And it wouldn't be a surprise if Job was an Adamic man living in, in Canaanite territory. Look at um, Abraham and his dealings with the Hittites, where he bought land from the Hittites with little trouble when he needed a real place for his wife and, and the rest of his family. So it, it's, it, it was a fact of life that land was bought and sold and traded from tribe to tribe, at this time, it's recorded in Scripture. I'm not going to label Job a Canaanite or an Edomite. I think that that would be rash, especially considering the rest of Scripture. In Habakkuk chapter 3, we read, and, and this is also a, a common a commonly misunderstood passage. In Habakkuk chapter 3 we read, God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And I have seen so many fools attempting to justify the Edomites because... Habakkuk says God came from Taman, as if God was an Edomite. Well, the Jews might love to hear that one. Here I will offer another prophetic picture, clearly related to the same prophecy, but found in Isaiah 63, chapter 1. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments 
from Bozrah. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to Well, it's describing Yahshua Christ. Only he can speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Just as many fools interpret this mean that Edomites wear red garments because that is their color, they neglect to read the next few verses in Isaiah. And we'll read Isaiah 62, 2 through, 2 through 4. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treads in the wine fat. I have trodden the winepress alone. This is a dialogue, right? And of the people, there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my dust, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. That's the acceptable year of the Lord. In Habakkuk 3, God comes from Teman because, if we read the rest of that chapter, he is executing judgment upon his enemies. Likewise, in Isaiah 63, God comes from Bozrah with garments red from the blood of his enemies at the day of his judgment. This accords with the revelation where we read in chapter 19 from verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Likewise, we see Obadiah, prophecy of Taman, verse 8. Shall I not in the day, saith Yahweh, even destroy the wise man out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau and thy mighty men O Teman shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter so God comes from Teman because he has just destroyed all of his enemies at Teman. That's why Habakkuk says that. Not because somehow God is a cake and Edomite. Known today is Jews. If God's a Jew, 
the universe is some sort of gross joke. Verse 12, And Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. Amalek became a special target of the wrath of Yahweh, where it says in Exodus chapter 17 that Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Scripture records that the Israelites had war with Amalek all the way to the time of David. The Amalekites are still extant, however, among the enemies of Israel when the 83rd Psalm was written. A lot of people think all the Psalms belong to David. That's not true. Many of the Psalms are Psalms of Asaph, and if you read the Psalms of Asaph carefully, you'll find that Asaph wrote his Psalms during the Babylonian captivity of Israel. The 83rd Psalm is a Psalm of Asaph from the Babylonian captivity. I'm going to read it in part. <clears throat> Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they, they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people, and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have, they have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent, and they are confederate against thee, the tabernacles of Edom, and the Ishmaelites of Moab, and the Hagarines, Gebal, and Ammon, and Amalek, the Philistines of the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. They have hoped the children of Lot, so, uh, Amalekites are indeed still with us today, whether they be Jews or Arabs now. The Ishmaelites, the Hagarenes, were enemies of Israel then. They were enemies of Israel upon the Babylonian destruction of Judah, the remnant of Judah, which is what the song of Asaph here is about. The Ishmaelites and the Hagarenes must be accounted enemies of Israel today. If any of these Arabs even have a claim to be Ishmael, they're the enemies of Israel. And some of them do have that claim, but you'll never sort them out. You'll never sort They're so mixed up, you'll never sort them out. They don't have a legitimate claim because they don't have any legitimate genealogies. And they're, they're um, contrived, well, their Jewish contrived religion, Islam, basically forbids them to even distinguish between races and, and tribes. All of the Arabs certainly can't claim to be Ishmael, because Ishmael was white. None of the Arabs can claim to be Ishmael. They're all bastards. That's why they're Arabs. 
We'll discuss that shortly, too. There is an interesting passage in Judges chapter 8 where Gideon had fought with some Ishmaelites. And it says in verse 24 of those who were slain, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. If we read Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, the Israelites were commanded to put holes in their ears as a sign when they wished to remain in bondage. Perhaps, and this is somewhat conjectural, when Paul called the children of Hagar, children of bondage in Galatians chapter 4, as Hagar was a bondwoman, Perhaps there is more to that story than we see in Scripture. The Ishmaelites were recognized by Gideon simply because they were men. They were dead, if we go back and read the story of Gideon. They were all dead, and Gideon recognized the corpses as Ishmaelites because they had golden earrings. Verse 13. And these are the sons of Ruel, Nahath and Zerah, Shammah and Mizah. These were the sons of Bashamath, Esau's wife, the Ishmaelite woman. Even if Ruel himself was white, untainted Ruel personally with Canaanite or Kenite blood, there is not one indication in Scripture that his descendants remained unmixed, and his descendants were never again distinguished from the rest of Edom, and they dwelt on Mount Hor, or Mount Seir, with the rest of the Edomites, according to this chapter. Verse 14. And these were the sons of Aholibama. That sounds way too familiar from more modern times. Daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife, and she bare to Esau, Jeush and Jalam and Kor, dukes of Esau, the Eliphaz, the first Esau, Duke Teman, Duke Omar, Duke Zepho, Duke Kenaz, Duke Korah, Duke Gatam, Duke Amalek, these are the dukes that came of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Adah, the Hittite woman. And these are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, Duke Nahath, Duke Zerah, Duke Shammah, Duke Mizah. These are the dukes that came of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Bashamath, Esau's wife. And these are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife. Duke Jayash, Duke Jalam, Duke Korah, these were the dukes that came of a holy Bama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these are their dukes. This next section of Genesis 36, we break from the descendants of Esau. This describes the, the descendants of the Horites. And I would ask, why are these significant? This, they must be significant in order to tell us that the Edomites had joined themselves to them. Why would these be listed 
next to Esau's descendants if the Edomites had not joined themselves to them. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Anah and Dishan and Ezer and Dishan. These are the dukes of the Horites, the children of Seir in the land of Edom. And the children of Lotan, were Hori and Haman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah, and the children of Shobal were these, Alvin, and Manahath, and Ebal, and Shepho, and Onam, and these are the children of Zibion, both Ajah and Anah. This was that Anah, this is a good passage right here, this was that Anah that found the mules in the wilderness, as he fed the asses of Zibion his father. And the children of Anna were these, Deshan and the Holy Mama, the daughter of Anna. Now, now, I said that was a good passage for a reason. For a reason. The reference to the word, the, the reference to the mules, that word, Strong's Hebrew number 3222, is said by Strong to actually mean a warm spring. And I checked the legitimacy of that from other lexicons, and basically that's what it means. It does not mean mule at all. I, I got the feeling that the King James translators, that they probably didn't know the meaning of the word and wrote mules, because in the middle of all these Edomites and, and, um, and, and Horites, we should expect to find mules, maybe two-legged mules, nothing but two-legged mules. I, I, I don't know if it's an inside joke or what. I can't read their minds why they may have written mules. The word means hot springs. I, I think it's funny. I think that it, it's fitting. But what stands out also is this. The way that is mentioned in, in verse 24 of this chapter it seems to me that the writer affected the reader to be familiar with some other story that is not found in the scripture. Otherwise, why would it be mentioned at all? So, it's interesting, but we'll never know the truth. I like mules better than hot springs, though. I thought it was funny. Verse 26, And these are the children of Deshaun. Hendon, and Eshban, and Ithran, and Karan. The children of Ezer are these, Bilhan, and Zavan, and Akan. The children of Bishan are these, Uz, so we see another Uz, and Aaron. These are the dukes, the king of the Horites, Duke Lotan, Duke Shobal, Duke Zibion, Duke Anna, Duke Dishan, Duke Ezer, Duke Dishan, one of those has an O at the end and the other an A. These are the dukes that came of Hori among their dukes in the land of Seir. Let me, let, let me quote Lamentations 4.21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of Uz. The cup also shall pass through unto thee. Thou shalt be drunken and shalt make thyself naked. That is in Lamentations. So Jeremiah is basically prophesying the um, harm that would come to Edom 
because the Edomites had rejoiced and participated in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in league with the Babylonians. Jeremiah chapter 25, listing the enemies of Judah long before that destruction, from verse 20, and all the mingled people. Now that word mingled, in Hebrew, that's Strong's number 6153. That is the word Ereb. E-R-E-B. That is where the modern word Arab comes from. It can mean mingled. Or, as a verb, it can also mean to grow dark. There's only one way that people grow dark. I shouldn't have to repeat it. And all the mingled, or Arab people, and all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, and Ashkelon, and Azah, and Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. Jeremiah listing the enemies of Judah. We see the mingled people, the Arab people, and all the kings of the land of Uz. The third section of Genesis 36 lists the sons of Esau who ruled over Edom, the descendants down the line. These two sections of Genesis 36 concerning the Edomites envelope the section concerning the Horites. By that we must know that the Edomites certainly did intermingle themselves with the Horites of Mount Seir rather than displacing them. Verse 31. And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. And Belah, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhabah. And Belah died, and Jobab, this must be a different Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah reigned in his stead. And Jobab died, and Husham of the land of Timani reigned in his stead. In addition to the prophecy of Isaiah 63.3, which we have already cited, there was another prophecy in Isaiah concerning Bozrah in chapter 34, Isaiah 34.6. The sword of Yahweh is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bozrah, and a great slaughter in the land of Edomia. Other prophecies against Bozrah are also found in Jeremiah chapters 48, 49, and in Amos 1:12. Verse 35. And Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who smote Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his stead. And the name of his city was Aviv. Here from this verse we learn that the Edomites engaged in wars with others of their neighbors to whom they were also related. Of course, they were that they were callous towards the children of Israel who were supposed to be their kinsmen, wouldn't let them cross through their land. 
that was all um, foreknown by Yahweh, of course, the children of Israel had to, circum had to circumspect the land of Edom through the desert to get around it to get to their destination on the plains of Moab. And that was brought up later in Scripture as an issue against Edom. Midian was the son of Abraham with Keturah. This story concerning Edom is not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, but evidently the Edomites had engaged in wars with their neighbors and, and for long before they came in under the purview of Israel. Verse 36. And Hadad died, and Samla of Masrachah reigned in his stead, and Samla died, and Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his stead. Rehoboth may be the place where Isaac had once dug a well, seen in Genesis 26-22, since it was far to the south and close to Beersheba, which would be close to the land of Edom. And Saul died, and Balhanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his stead. And Balhanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his stead. And the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehetabal, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. We see the female line being followed here for his wife rather than who her father was and his father. And these are the names of the dukes that came of Esau according to their families, after their places, by their names. Duke Timnah, Duke Alba, Duke Jetheth. Timnah was later a border town of Judah. The tribe of Judah had taken it from the Edomites. Joshua 15, 10, 15, 27. 2 Chronicles 28:18. it's still in Judah. Duke Aholibama, Duke Elah, Duke Penan, Duke Kenaz, Duke Taman, Duke Mibzar, Duke Magdiel, Duke Iram. These be the dukes of Edom according to their habitations in the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Most of these names and places are obscure and not mentioned again in Scripture. Most of the names in Genesis 36 are obscure. There's only a few that stand out, and we've discussed them. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, evidently considered a wide range of people to be Arabians. Where in Antiquities chapter 14 he mentions Marissa, which he elsewhere described as an Edomian city, to be one of twelve cities which were, quote-unquote, taken from the Arabians. So in one place, Josephus calls them Edomians, and in another place, he calls them Arabians. It is evident from Josephus that all of the people of these twelve cities discussed there were converted to Judaism when the cities were taken. For instance, Josephus says explicitly of Pella that it was destroyed because the inhabitants would not accept Judaism. And we'll quote that in a second. Generally, 
we turn to this quote from Antiquities chapter 13. From line 257, in order to show that the Judeans had absorbed the Edomites into Judaism. And I'm going to read it again. Hyrcanus took also Dora and Maris, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians, and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the right of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans. Well, well that only mentions Dora and, and Marissa, yet there were many more cities than that, even though we usually, and, and I do anyway, commonly turn to this place to show that Edomites were being turned forcibly to Judaism and gladly accepted that conversion as Josephus describes it there were many other places in Josephus where we can see that this was indeed happening I'm going to read one of them from Antiquities book 13 the same book from line 395 which is a several chapters in, in Whiston's system after the first quote. In that place, Josephus says, Now at this time, the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians and the Dumians and Phoenicians. Now when Josephus says Phoenicians, in the Hellenistic period, the term was used as we see in Matthew chapter 15, it was used of the inhabitants of the land formerly known as the land belonging to Asher. It was used primarily of the Canaanites who dwelt in that land, the coast of what we know as Phoenicia, after the deportations of the ancient Israelites. So when Josephus says Phoenicians, he for the most part does mean Canaanites. And he describes these cities that had belonged to the Syrians and Edomians and Phoenicians at the seaside. Stratos Tower, later that was changed to Caesarea by Herod, and the city was built up to a much bigger city. Apollonia, Joppa, Jamnia, Ashdod, Gaza, Anthedon, Raphia, Rhinocolura, in the middle of the country near to Edomia, Adorn and Marissa, near the country of Samaria, Mount Carmel and Mount Tabor, Scythopolis and Gadara of the country of Golanitis, Seleucia and Gabala, in the country of Moab, Heshbon and Medaba, Lamba and Oronis, Gelathon, Zara, the valley of the Kilikas and Pella, which they, which last, referring to Pella, they utterly destroyed because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rites for those peculiar to the Judeans. Then he says, the Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria 
which had been destroyed, meaning in the wars between the Maccabees and the Greek rulers of Syria. The Maccabees conquered all these cities and converted forcibly all these people of all these cities to Judaism. When Pella resisted, they destroyed the city. None of these people called Jews or Israel. And many of them are indeed Edomites and Canaanites and others of the enemies of the ancient Israelites. With this, it is evident that under the Maccabees, all of what later became known as Judea either converted to Judaism or their cities were destroyed. This includes both Edomites, other Canaanite peoples, and other non-Israel peoples as well. There's other evidence in Josephus which also supports this assertion. I'm going to end this presentation here. The next segment of Pragmatic Genesis will discuss Judah and Tamar and the Canaanite tribes of Judah and of Simeon, something that's mostly ignored even in CI. We have to mention it here. And we'll talk about the tribe of Simeon. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I apologize for the... Um, the, the delays and the technical difficulties getting this program started, I, it's beyond my control. It, it would be um, a pleasure to have to have had Sword Brethren here with me tonight to help me present this material. I, I'm sure he would have had further discussion that would have been relevant. I, I can't help it. He couldn't, he, he couldn't make the telephone connection. I will be here next Friday with my presentation of the Prophet Micah, Part 2. Next Saturday's program will probably be Pragmatic Genesis, Part 15. That might be the next to last Pragmatic Genesis. There are other questions with which are raised in Genesis. I'm trying to hit on all of the major points and settle all of the major what, what I call heresies, Christian identity heresies, and, and, and fairy tales we have in Christian identity that have to be dismissed. They have to be put away. We have to have a Christian identity that has an academic foundation and, and not just a contentious one. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.